Hey, welcome to this session. Today, I'm pretty excited about this. This came out of the last session discussion I had with some friends. Um, you know, we always talk about the good things that happen when you multiply churches, and we always pit addition versus multiplication. Uh, we need to talk about opportunities and costs and how you weigh them in between. Uh, we need to talk about the fact that you need to add members if you're going to multiply churches. You need to make disciples if you're going to raise up leaders who are capable of multiplying churches. And so we're looking at all of that in this session that's called Opportunities versus Costs. As we get into this, I want to start out talking about opportunities and probably easiest to just tell my own story. Back in way back in the 1970s, uh, the whole hippie thing was still breaking out. You still had a lot of short hair people. Jimmy Carter hadn't become president, looking like a you know a long hair himself. And so churches were making choices. And some of the very first people that came to our church were people that were brought by a young girl who was very straight herself, very conservative. But she had these friends who had found Jesus and they had shared the Lord with her. And they were, you'd have to call them hippies. They were still in high school, long hair, uh, going to school barefoot, raggedy jeans, doing little drugs on the side, all that. But then they found Jesus and they shared the Lord with this young girl. Well, then they tried to go to a regular church and, and that church made a choice. And that choice was you have to dress a certain way or you can't come into this building. And they were rebuffed at that point. Uh, they fell back into their old ways, but this young girl found the Lord in our church, and then she went and found them, and she brought them to us. Now, we're faced with a choice. By now, uh, we've got a few middle-class people. We actually started as a pretty much middle-class congregation. I'm a suit and tie guy, you know, the whole thing. I got the, in those days, the white wall haircut, and I had to make some decisions. Where Was I going to embrace these people? And the obvious spiritual need that was there, or was I going to try and just look like a conventional church? Well, of course, we made the decision that we did. We got a lot of scorn from the other churches in town. The denomination didn't know what to do with us. Um, obviously, there's not a whole lot of money when you're dealing with a lot of very young people. And, you know, some people are coming out of the drug deal. You know, they used to sell stuff. Now they make sand candles and sell them at the swap meet. Uh, this was our story. But it turned out to be a really good choice because this was an unreached people group. And we were able to reach into them and the repercussions are still going on. I mean, um, many of those original people are still pastoring churches. Uh, we're seeing, you know, my friend Ed Stetzer now is trying to pull together a thing to examine uh, what went on in the Jesus movement. Alan Hirsch is doing the same thing. Uh, they want to know, they want to learn from this, but it really came down to a series of choices. You could have chosen one opportunity to look like the middle-class stereotype, whatever church was, or you could see the other opportunity. Uh, every opportunity has a cost associated with it. If you choose the one thing, you cannot choose the other. When we moved to Hawaii, the decision we consciously made was that we are going to reach people with black hair. That means Hawaiian people, Japanese people, Chinese people, Filipino people, and we're all going to do this with a white-faced pastor. Now, here was the problem when we went to Hawaii. We found that most churches that were pastored by white people, and that was most churches, only 4% of the population even called themselves Christians, let alone went to church at that time. That includes Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, and Protestants. 
And so we decided we're going to be a rainbow church. We're going to get in there and we're going to reach people uh, who, who look different than each other and certainly look different than me. My point of pride when I was pastoring the church and it got big, you know, we had six, seven uh, worship services going on. We were into big rock and roll bands. I mean, that was our worship style. And we'd have 11 to 13 people in every band. In many of those bands, there wasn't a white person there. Now, we weren't against white people. I did get called a reverse racist by some of my white friends a few times. But we were really interested in reaching the people who are the people of Hawaii, who make up the majority. Now, the demographics of Hawaii are this. About 25% of the population are Japanese Americans. That's the largest minority in Hawaii. The second largest minority in Hawaii is just around 25%, but a little less than the Japanese people of white people. And then after that, there are Chinese people. After that are Filipino people. After that, you get to the, the native Hawaiians. Uh, of course, there's a lot of people are just all what we call all chop suey in Hawaii. And, and then African-Americans kind of come in. Uh, many of the African-Americans that are in Hawaii uh, because of the history of our country are there because they came there in the military and they decided this was a good place to be. And so they're a very small part of the population. We really endeavored to have, a, a, we wanted to have a slice of all the slices of the pie in our church and we did it pretty well. And so um, we, we were able to see opportunity in hippies. We saw opportunity in the local people in Hawaii who were not being reached by the Christian church. Uh, we began to realize that there are unreached people groups. And when I say unreached people groups, I kind of go to seed talking about this. But just take this one example. Xerox Corporation, there's a shooting. Five people are murdered in a conference room. One of our staff pastors decides that's an unreached people group those folks who worked in that office, very small group, but very unique. They all had a common experience that really rattled their cage, shook their life. He left staff, took a job at Xerox with the express intent of becoming the pastor to those people. Now, we had surfer churches, we had biker churches, we had skateboarder churches, we had, you know, every kind of church. We had attorney churches. Uh, we were reaching people because we saw them as unreached people groups and we went beyond ethnicity. Many people, when they think of unreached people groups, and there are 523 unreached ethnicities in the United States. This means there's a sizable population or a pocket of people living somewhere in our country. I know a whole bunch of Nepalis in the Chicago area. Uh, I know where the Mongolians live uh, in, in Michigan and Minnesota. And so we think of these as unreached people groups, and they are. But then we have these other little subcultures all around us. And, and so if we see opportunity there, uh, there, there's a cost associated with that opportunity. I'm going to reach these people. I'm not going to do something else. And so we just got to weigh these things back and forth. There are broken people. I got off a conversation this morning. I was out for a, a two-mile walk. I spent the most the whole time talking to a gay man who is, is, a, is a Catholic who prays every day for a half an hour, who doesn't go to any church, rejects church because he thinks that church rejects him. So there's an unreached people group. He's concerned about the homeless people in San Diego County who have jobs. And he wants to reach those people 
who, who have a job, but they don't have enough money to pay rent. That's an unreached people group. And so when we begin to expand our thinking to just who's out there, uh, we start to see opportunities everywhere. And then to me, the greatest opportunity of all, when we start thinking about church multiplication, making disciples who can become pastors, who can reproduce the church, whether it's a micro church or a mega church, I don't really care. I just want to get the job done. Here, here's the biggest opportunity at all, of all for me, anyway, is that you get to reach your own version of Acts chapter 1-8. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I think there's a call pretty much on every Christian in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now, as a young person coming out of a Bible college, I thought that meant I had to just evangelize everybody. And that was just overwhelming. It bummed me out. One day I was meditating in scripture and I began to realize I have an Acts 1-8. I had gotten involved with a, a conference that I wanted to attend. And they asked us to draw a, a, a circle 10 miles around where our church was located. Well, we're up against the ocean. So that circle, you know, a lot of that circle was in the water. But how many people lived in that circle? And it was about 100,000 people. And so they're going, how are you going to reach 100,000 people? Another way they put it is, how are you going to reach all the people that live within 12 stoplights of your church? Well, 12 stoplights from our church was actually 50 miles away because we we're close enough to a freeway that we were like seven stoplights away from the freeway. So that kind of expanded the radius, but it put a boundary around it. And it, it helped me to realize I'm responsible for a, a very small locality, and then I'm a little less responsible, but still responsible in a different way for a little larger circle. And then, you know, I'm going to start praying that God will give us something in the ends of the earth. And, and so I, I begin to look at Manhattan Beach, California in this way. That my wife had a, a route selling Avon cosmetics. Remember the Avon ladies? And it was actually about two square blocks, uh, and they're large blocks. With, and, and so it actually was about 200 houses. And so we begin to think this is our immediate mission field. And we started handing out literature. I just go, first I try to go and hand it to people that get mad at me, think I was a Jehovah's Witness or something. I started just leaving literature in their door. And I just keep going back and going back. But my wife was going in those houses, talking to the wives that were there. We got seven pastors over a dozen years. We got seven pastors out of those 200 houses. Seven people we discipled. They went out and they planted churches. One guy, Randy Bolt, planted a whole bunch of churches. And so this, is, this, this was our story. I distributed literature to 13,000 houses in Manhattan Beach, California. So my Jerusalem here is two, two blocks of Manhattan Beach. My Judea is the whole town of Manhattan Beach. Um, the Samaria for us was the 12 stoplights thing. And then after that, we started praying for other countries and we got to do stuff in Mexico. We got to do some things in Africa. Uh, we were praying for Europe, it never happened. We certainly were able to plant churches across the United States. I was able to engage and fulfill the calling that's on my life in Acts chapter one, verse eight, because I saw the opportunities that were afforded me if I would intentionally make disciples who make disciples, and I would intentionally raise leaders who are capable of planting other churches. 
And so when you start to think about this opportunity and cost, I like to think of it this way. And it's a little kind of corny, I get it. But um, I think of opportunity divided by cost as if it was um, you know, an equation equals benefit. Opportunity divided by cost equals benefit. And the photograph that you're seeing here is taken from the top of Diamond Head. Usually you see pictures of Diamond Head from Waikiki Beach. Well, this is just going the other way. You see Waikiki and then you see uh, the downtown business center. And, and then you see what's called the Eva Plain off in the distance to the left-hand side of the photograph uh, is where all the new housing is going. There's what's called the second city out there. Uh, it's where I lived toward the last few years of Hawaii. If you look to the right side of the thing, you see mountains and just the other side of those mountains are two towns, Kailua and Kaneohe. And I lived in Kailua, town of about 40,000. I pastored in Kaneohe, town of about 40,000. Before we were done, we had reached uh, um, we, we had uh, easily five to six percent of Kaneohe in church every Sunday morning. Uh, that's very significant because when we moved to Hawaii, only four percent of the people called themselves Christians. Catholic, there was more Catholics than anybody, then was Protestants, and then was um, Mormons, and then Jehovah's Witnesses. And I don't call Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses Christians, but that's what the United States Census called Christians. So we're reaching uh, five, six percent of, of our community, uh, but we began to plant churches all over the island. And I remember when we first started out, we were planting only on what's called Windward Oahu. That would be the mountains on the right side, the other side of the mountain where the wind blows against the mountain. And, and so we're planting churches there and we're growing pretty big, pretty fast. And then we begin to realize there's people driving from all over everything that you can see in this photograph. And so uh, even Waikiki, you can see the pink hotel down there, the Royal Hawaiian. Uh, we started a church in Waikiki in a community center. The thing's been going on for 30 years and they've planted churches. Uh, we planted a big church. I was gonna leave the big church that we were pastoring in Kaneohe and move to the Eva Plain way out to your left in that picture uh, and, and plant a church there and leave one of my disciples in, in the other church, the, the mother church. But the decision was made by church council, no, John goes, I stay. But we were able, because we saw opportunity in multiplication, it cost us something in addition. We grew to about 3,000 people, uh, 2,300, 2,400 in attendance, including DigiChurch. But we, we, we grew to a church of about 3,000 people. In the years that we planted uh, churches that, that that turned the numbers in Hawaii, the demographics, 4% Christians to 67% of the people called themselves first Protestants or Catholics, and it didn't count the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. We were able to change a culture because we chose the costs and opportunities that were associated with multiplication rather than just the opportunities that we associate with addition. So let's just take a look at some of these things. I just put some costs up here. And, and, and if you decide to multiply churches, here's what you lose. It costs you something to multiply churches. First, you lose bodies in the seat. And, that, and you know, that whole thing just makes you feel good. There's more people here than there were last week. Well, 
that's what you lose first. You lose the most, you know. I mean, we'll we'll normally start a church and send out 70 to 150 people to start a church. Uh, four different times we've sent 20% of our congregation. Uh, that was the first church. It was 20% of our congregation. Once we started two churches on one day and sent out 25% of our congregation, we were a church about 1,400 at that time. So we gave away 350 people. 300 went to one town about four miles from us, and 50 people went to the other town about 12 miles from us. And so there's this loss of bodies, but you know what? You get the bodies back quickly. When we plant churches and and there's a lot of enthusiasm about it. What happens is you fill up very quickly. That time that we lost 350 people, we gave away 350 people. We didn't lose them. Uh, we we filled back up our numbers within three weeks, two weeks, three weeks. It's crazy. But when a church is into multiplying, it's also into evangelism. That's an exciting thing. The second thing that you lose is money because uh, you first you lose people who are givers, but also you give them money as they go out the door. And we've always been very, very generous about this. And, uh, and it takes a little while. Usually it takes uh, five, six months until I get around to teaching about, and I did this twice a year, by the way, teaching about tithing. And I believe in 10% tithing. I've done it myself all my life. And I, I teach it to people and they generously give, but it takes a while to get that money back. So there's a cost associated with that. There's a belt tightening associated with that. And then there are leaders. I, I mean, volunteers, you lose volunteers and you lose leaders who are capable of managing volunteers. And that takes longer for that to redevelop than it does to put the bodies back in the chairs or the money in the offering. Um, you know, I, I have a story I like to tell when I was a young, young person. I was attending a church. I was working in a church. And there's a guy named Dick Moore, no relation to me. But but Dick was the main worship leader in our church. He was the head of the church board. And he taught an adult Sunday school class. This is a church of maybe 160 people. So this is a very significant member. He died, aged 38 he died, and, and it was just a tragedy. And I remember sitting in church just thinking, our church has lost it. You know, we're, we're, we're doomed because we lost Dick because he did so many things. And then a year later, the pastor got up and talked about, it's been a year since we lost Dick Moore, and just kind of a memorial to, to, to Dick. And uh, But as I'm sitting there thinking about it, I'm realizing, hey, there's this guy, Ray Boyd. He, he took over managing pretty much the finances and the church council. There's another person who leads worship. And there, there's, you know, every job that Dick had, somebody else had grown into it. And the cool thing was the pruning, which tragically happened when we lost the life of somebody we loved. But the pruning that takes place when you multiply churches and you send people out the door, uh, pruning a bush always results in, in more fruit, more branches, more leaves, more everything. And the pruning that takes place when you multiply churches, the cost of giving away leaders and volunteers always results in more people stepping in because, you know, somebody was really good at the job. Now they're gone. It's going to take two or three people now to take their place. And as those people mature, you're way better off than you ever were before. Here's the fourth cost. And it took my wife, after many years of doing this, and, and we started to slow down. We were a mother church, and then we became a grandmother church, and then we became a great-grandmother church. And you know what? Grandmothers can have babies, but they don't have them as fast or as easily 
as mothers do. And so my wife began to notice that as, as we send people out the door, the most fanatical, excited about Jesus, brand new Christian evangelists tend to go out with the new church plant. Now, when you're young and healthy, um, that's a great thing. But as you get older and flabby, which we did after 20, 25 years of doing this thing, uh, it, we, we just kept giving away our, our best evangelists so fast that it took us a little bit longer to heal. And so we actually had to pace ourselves back and analyze the costs and go, we're going to go a little slower at this church planting thing than we used to in the, in the early days. And so, again, this is just a balancing act that you got to do, but the costs are real. We got to think about it. On the other side, there are these kind of motivational costs or personal costs. And, you know, if you pastor in a mega church, you're famous. And, you know, a lot of people want fame. Uh, if you're pastoring a, a big church, there's public recognition. When I was in Honolulu, good night. I was on the radio 15 times a week. Um, we were on television. We were doing stuff on the internet. We're doing DigiChurch. Um, we're planting churches all over. I was speaking at business groups and whatever. It got to this point. When, when the Pope died, the newspaper called me to find out what I thought about the death of the Pope and how the Pope and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher had defeated communism. And, 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 and so there's this public recognition that goes with uh, being a big church, but also comes along if you're thinking about it, if you like that sort of thing. And, and, and I sort of do and sort of don't, you know, the ego part of me likes the recognition. Uh, there's the introvert part of me doesn't like it a bit. And by the way, the day that the lady called me about the Pope, I really didn't have anything to say. So I made something up and it sounded stupid and she never did print it, but she printed a lot of other stuff that I had said because she called me all the time. And so you know, if you choose to multiply and you're not real large, well, then you're not going to probably get real large and you're going to miss the fame. You're going to miss the public recognition. You might miss out on getting promoted because a lot of denominations look at addition growth and then they promote people to bigger churches or they promote people to denominational positions and, you know, all that. And then, of course, uh, there's the personal cost of salary. I mean, if you're giving away money all the time and you're giving away the people who give the money, well, then it's going to bound to have some sort of an impact on your salary. And here's what I want to say about that. I have made some of the stupidest decisions you possibly could make in terms of investing money. And over and over and over, God has rewarded my stupidity mixed together with my faithfulness and generosity and has blessed the stupid decisions that I made beyond reason to the point where I'm retired. I'm basically living off of social security and what I get from my investments and I'm doing really, really well. And I didn't, you know, I took a pastor's salary and I didn't take a huge salary. Uh, there were people pastoring churches the same size as mine that were earning a whole lot more than I was, but I chose that we would multiply churches and we would give away the money. And I'm really thankful I did. And I'm here to tell you that when you make those kind of decisions, God will be faithful to you and he'll bless you in some other way from some other angle. He always does it. And then the last thing I want to talk about before we get out of this is just uh, trade-offs. And just to remind you that every opportunity carries a cost, every opportunity. If you, you know, you, you choose to go surfing in the morning, 
you know, I used to do that when I was younger. I couldn't go hit golf balls at the driving range. I choose to write a book. Well, then I don't get a chance to read fun books as much as I like to do it. Every opportunity carries a cost. And, and, and yet the flip side of that is that most unforeseen costs also bring opportunities with them. I mean, look at COVID. COVID, it just there are huge costs associated with COVID, but businesses, medicine, education, and the church are benefiting from innovation because they see in the cost, in the crisis, they see an opportunity and they begin to exploit that opportunity. And when we talk about exploiting opportunities, this is my second point here, is that many, many opportunities arise when we assume that God has supplied all of our needs, like it says in Philippians 4 and in John 15. In fact, John 15 says, God wants you to bear a lot of fruit and he wants that fruit to remain. And because of that, he's gonna give you everything that you ask for. I mean, that's an immense promise. And, you know, I, I look around and a crisis hits or we started a church and more people than we wanted to went out the door or whatever it is. And, and I'm sitting around freaking out and, and then I'm reminded if these scriptures are actually true, that God supplies all of our needs, then he's already supplied all of our needs. And, but we don't have this. And we used to have this. And you know, what are we going to do? Well, this is where innovation comes in. As, as soon as I approach need and crisis and all of this with contentment in my heart, then I begin to, to go, well, God already supplied it, and I don't see it. So I'm not seeing it in the right way. So I need to look at this thing from another angle. And, and this is where we've become very disruptive as a church. I've become disruptive as a leader. I'm proud of that fact that we do things differently than other people do them. And, and we do things in ways that upset systems, but they work. And innovation always is disruptive and it always upsets systems. And, you know, when we get back to talking about the, the, the shared values and, and skills and staff and strategic planning, all that we're gonna have to look at, you really have to factor in the willingness to look at costs and go, they're real, I'm lacking something, but I have everything that I need. And if I'll look to the Lord, he's gonna give me a new way to look at this thing, and I'm gonna find benefit and blessing where other people are, are, are moaning and weeping and feeling bad about themselves. And then just to wrap this up, I just want to reinforce that you often have to choose between competing opportunities. And every time that you choose one opportunity or the other opportunity, the opportunity that you just chose against costs you something, you know, back to surfing or hitting golf balls in the driving range. If I want to go hit golf balls in the driving range all morning, I didn't get to go surfing. It costs me a surfing adventure to hit golf balls. If I decide to go surfing, it costs me the golf ball thing. Yeah, and you can fit both of them into one day. And sometimes uh, we, we get to do that. But most often, when you're going to choose one thing, you're rejecting another. You just have to be mindful of that. You got to balance them. And then you got to go, where's the most benefit? And that takes me back to opportunities divided by costs equal benefits.